Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, what does the death of Russia's high-profile dissident, Alexei Navalny, mean for the future of the country? Who was Alexei Navalny and what exactly did he stand for? Navalny was not the only political dissident in Russia. Who else is resisting the government and its direction and what are their causes? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. On February 16th, 2024, Alexei Navalny died in a Russian prison. Navalny was perhaps the most well-known critic and opponent of Russian President Vladimir Putin. He had been poisoned in 2020, with allies to Putin heavily suspected as carrying it out. He was treated in Berlin and then returned to Russia in 2021, where he was immediately arrested. Human rights groups and supporters decried the arrest and the prison conditions of his incarceration, which likely contributed, if not directly caused, his death. Who was Alexei Navalny? What did he stand for? What does the killing of Navalny mean for resistance to Putin's rule in Russia? Who are some of the other political prisoners, dissidents in Russia? And what does this killing mean for the future of Russian governance, for its foreign policy, most notably the invasion of Ukraine, but a lot of other issues, and in general, for political movements in the nation. On this week's show, our panelist Robert English. He's Associate Professor of International Relations and the co-director of the Central European Studies Program at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Russia and the Idea of the West. And Steve Squardlow. He's Associate Professor of the Practice of Human Rights in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern California. You will note all three of us are from the same institution. Um, he is the author of Uzbekistan's Religious and Political Prisoners and Uzbekistan's Ethnic Minorities, Out of Sight but Not Out of Mind, and writes extensively as a human rights monitor for Human Rights Watch. Thank you both very much for joining us. Steve, we'll start with you. Who was Alexei Navalny and why was there so much opposition to Navalny from the Russian regime? Well, you know, among the canon and the long tradition of Russian dissidents and Russian opposition figures, Navalny really stands out as probably one of the most creative, the one who electrified, who really understood the internet. I think one of his lasting legacies will be that he tapped into a certain cre creativity, a certain humor, a sarcasm that allowed him to really captivate the imagination of ordinary Russians. I mean, I still meet with and talk to so many people from different walks of life in Russia, uh, you know, stewardesses, entrepreneurs, uh, business people, people that you wouldn't think about as part of the broader Russian opposition that in the years of roughly, um, you know, from 2015 until his death, within, with an increasing number, were joining the ranks of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, which he, he founded in those middle years between 2010 and 2020, when he first really came into the attention. Um, of course, he's been active in politics, had been active in politics since the early 2000s, but when he really um, first comes on the scene in a way that we hadn't seen before was when he got on the stage of the so-called Balotnaya protests uh, in Moscow, which were in connection to Putin's intention, uh, if we remember, to come back to the presidency and, and announce his, his intention to run again in 2012, to come back to the presidency. This sparked enormous frustration, and Navalny really um, seized on that moment. He got up on stage. He spoke to hundreds of thousands. Um, the the protesters were uh, were were you know hemmed in by by security forces. And from that moment forward, he, he was really sort of at the top of the pyramid. But he was uh, of course 
staying, standing side by side with people like Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated in 2015, and other uh, other leaders. But again, you know, other than his creativity and um, you know that those videos, uh, Putin's palace, where he revealed uh, the lavish riches and the the peacock farms and the pools and the yachts uh, that Putin had in, in in these stunning videos. Beyond that, he was also just so incredibly courageous. You know, despite all the controversy around some of his views, and we'll get to those, nobody, I don't think anybody, um, could show the sort of courage that Navalny did, as you said, Doug, when he returned to Russia after almost being killed with Novichok poisoning gas in, in, in 2021. And, and that was so masterfully filmed in this documentary Navalny that's that's available that I show to my students those moments of courage that that total understanding that he would be arrested and likely killed um is is just it's, it was stunning it is stunning um people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky he spent years and years in prison of course and there's no taking away from the suffering of of every single uh, opposition figure to Putin but again Navalny had something that um he seemed to believe he seemed to know he was willing to call Putin's bluff. Um, and so uh, that stayed with him until the end, this extraordinary sort of energy and the laughter even you can see in the video where he's appearing in this court uh, hearing just the day before his death. He appeared energetic. He was you know, bantering with the judge, sort of mocking the whole Russian criminal justice system for sending him um, to uh, the, this, this northern prison where he was essentially killed. And there's some also reports now emerging, Doug, and by the time this airs, his funeral will have taken place in Moscow with enormous difficulty. Um, but there were some reports just in the last few days that there was a possibility, in fact, that Navalny may have been up for a prisoner exchange um, with a high-profile uh, Russian security agent that, that, that Putin wanted to return from Germany. And so now there's some speculation coming from the people who were closest to Navalny that, in fact, perhaps Putin intervened to prevent this exchange and may have even that may be further evidence uh, militating towards the idea that he was in fact killed um, and and didn't just die. Rob English, Steve highlighted this documentary on Navalny, which when I say Navalny is the most well-known dissident, that's certainly true in the West. A lot of people knew who he was. What was his status in Russia prior to his killing? I mean, was he well-known? Was he seen as a leader in the resistance movement, you know, a leading voice? Or is this more of a case of a bit more of a celebrity in the West than he was in Russia. I think the latter is true in recent years. And the reason it's true is testimony to the power of a regime like Putin's with its control of the media and with its ability to intimidate, arrest, to silence people, that he became less well-known, that he wasn't as prominent as a decade before, and that he, while still somebody greatly admired and somebody followed, um, by a certain circle of people, those who access the internet regularly, um, those who are better educated, oriented towards the West, younger and more liberal. Um, and we see many of those people, whether in candid interviews, whether in spontaneous memorials, we see that they're there. And we may see on Friday at his funeral that there are many more than we suspect. But for probably a majority of Russians, even if they'd known who he was and perhaps he caught their fancy. After all, he's a corruption fighter first and foremost. And it was his ex exposés, his documentaries, his investigations. And as Steve properly said, 
the dramatic, very social media oriented, internet based way that he publicized them that made him famous. And everyone can agree that corruption is bad. Yevgeny Prigozhin, right wing nationalists complain about corruption. They may be more concerned about corruption in the military um, than in other sectors, but everyone knows and, and on some level detests the waste, fraud, um, the frustration of the corruption of the Russian system of today. So initially, he probably had admirers across the political spectrum and became more and more prominent. And again, appeared at public rallies. Um, he wasn't quite completely censored from the state media, and it was much more easy to circulate clips, um, talk about him. And his organization was active, not just in Moscow, but many provincial regions too. Um, and then the regime decided they would shut him down. They would you know, take steps to make him gradually a non-person. And Steve mentioned the poisoning, exile, you know, the, the repeated imprisonment, the not just the most deadly poisoning with a nerve agent, but you know, throwing various kinds of acids or um, you know, tea bags that were doctored. He was poisoned more than once in different ways. And over time, his disappearance from state media and this repression of mention, discussion, gathering, assembly meant that, yeah, a decade has passed, right, since Bolotnaya, more or less. And while that wasn't the last time the public saw or heard from Navalny, his image, his visibility in, or, for ordinary Russians has simply gone way down. And so sadly, we see, even in some of the, um, you know, some of the candid interviews where people spoke frankly or their identities were concealed, in the, in, in the last week, I mean, we see, it's hard to, these aren't precise opinion polls, but we see that a significant number of people, including young or some middle-aged people, have this kind of, um, either they don't remember who he was and he was no big deal, or they remember and they say, yeah, that's, he was somebody important, um, but, but I haven't thought about him in a long time. Um, his death is unfortunate. You know, the issues he raised mattered, but he seems like he belongs almost to another era, to a significant percentage of people. And again, that's not any reflection on the quality, the importance of his work, but simply the way he was just absent. He was just squeezed out of state media and squeezed out of public life. So it's testimony to, again, the power of control that the Putin regime has over um, political discussion, over the news media, over what people see, hear, and discuss. Steve, that seems to then raise the question about the effectiveness of just dissidents in general. That's, you know, the regime has this ability to marginalize dissidents, to take them off of state media, and the importance of networks of activists to keep their message alive, you know, keep their, their memory alive. That's a pretty consistent narrative in Russia, isn't it? That you get these dissidents that gain some visibility, some notoriety, and then the regime and kind of cut them off and, and deny them. So was, I guess the question is, is how much does Navalny's uh, narrative fit into the narrative of dissidents in Russia, certainly throughout recent history and even you know throughout a longer history? There's a long history, 200 years or so, of Tsarist Russia, of the Soviet Union, and now you know the dissidents of Russia, the exiled ones and those brave enough to stay in the country are some of the most battle-hardened, most, as we were saying, most creative, most determined philosophers slash uh, entrepreneurial in a way figures in terms of what Navalny was creating was he was cultivating a YouTube channel that garnered millions, uh, hundreds of thousands. I mean, he really mastered this system of, of, again, finding a way to pierce through that state-controlled media, 
not RT, which is we're seeing in the West, but the Russian channels on TV. He was finding a way to appeal to younger Russians and again, to a broader swath of the public, but certainly Putin went to great lengths to try to marginalize him and other voices. You know, but I, I think we've seen really a return in some ways, there's a, a lot of parallels with late Soviet reality of stagnation and, and also the heightened number, maybe not Stalin numbers, but Brezhnev numbers of political prisoners in Russia. I think I've seen some estimates today or yesterday, the AP put out a new report on political prisoners in Russia and the U.S. mission to the OSCE put out a figure of 580, another group 640. That may be slightly lower than the actual number, but we're talking about a large group of people, include not just the well-known ones like Vladimir Karamurza or Yuri Dmitriev. Just yesterday before we recorded this podcast, one person that was very close to me, a personal hero, Oleg Orlov, the, the head of the Memorial Human Rights Organization in Russia, was given a two-year, six-month sentence. And when he stood up and gave his final word in court, he pointed to this increasing absurdity in Russian reality. He talked about the fact that just a month or so ago, the Russian Supreme Court declared the LGBT movement to be extremist, in quotes, um, which has opened a floodgates of various rulings labeling everything from, you know, Jehovah's Witness to LGBT to the slightest manifestations of anti-war criticism in Russia now are qualified as discrediting the Russian army and can send you behind bars for you know, six years. So we're seeing a dramatic expansion and a quickening of the pace of repression and the numbers of political prisoners increasing like like really never before in the last 30 years of, of independent Russia. And so, yes, they are marginalized, Doug, but I think we're also witnessing in some ways this moment of truce for the Russian opposition, where many are showing that they are willing to combat young and old, uh, various, again, various things happening in Russian society that we can now see on the internet from student meetings and confrontations with university administrators to courageous LGBT activists to older historians like Yuri Dmitriev, uh, who's been in prison now for a while. But I think that's going to continue that confrontation. So I don't want to say I'm optimistic, but I do hold out hope that the Russian uh, human rights community, which I know fairly well, is still determined to stay in this game and is doing whatever they can to raise concerns and, and reach out to the larger Russian public. And you listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're talking about the death of Alexei Navalny, the status of uh, resistance movements and dissidents in Russia, and uh, political repression in Russia with Steve Swerdlow and Rob English, both of uh, the University of Southern California. Rob, Steve's just described a, a Russia that's increasing the number of political prisoners and, and questions of, of political repression. I know um, a lot of times these discourses seem to tie this to, to the potential for opposition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. First of all, is this tied to potential growing opposition to Russia's occupation invasion in Ukraine? Or is there something else going on here? I think Steve um, said it best when he first pointed out that this is not just about Alexei Navalny. If we're looking at resistance to the Putin regime, criticism of the war, criticism of domestic policies, um, then he pointed out, sorry, human rights activists, LGBT activists, uh, students, uh, university people against the war, against the, you know, the repression, against the 
sort of turn back to not quite totalitarian, but approaching totalitarian state. Um, so it's not just about Navalny or it's not just about the war. There is a broader dissatisfaction. But then the key question becomes, the question on everyone's mind is, will this have political significance? Is this something that Putin you know, can handily control with selective repression and won't really change anything? Or is it uh, some echo of a past movement that could bring down a regime or at least be a spark to it? And I can't know the future. You know, Putin continually surprises us. And believe me, he studied because he lived through, right, the era of Pidistroika, the end of the Soviet Union, the last time we had uh, anti-war, human rights, other activists um, come to play such a prominent role um, in the reforms and eventual breakup of the Soviet Union. So he knows that intimately. And, and it's not like he's uh, unaware. I mean, his mission is to undo that and be prepared to you know, maintain this unitary, top-down, militarized state explicitly. So he won't be taken by surprise by any of this. And we have to assume he's managing it in a way that he thinks is effective. Doesn't mean he's going to be able to indefinitely. But in trying to, you know, again, use recent and more distant analogies to puzzle out what might lie ahead. Could this, are we going to see growing dissent that the regime cannot contain and therefore has to either um, decide on really brutal, bloody repression or um, reforms. And, and the first of those would be ending the war um, or some third path. We don't know. But I would say the following, and it's to be a little, it's to dampen enthusiasm or expectations of any kind of rapid breakthrough in this way. Um, I hear and I see um, reporters a lot in the media uh, make casual reference to supposedly how the anti-war movement, soldiers against the war, um, because of the Afghan war, right, that began in 1979, the Soviets were there for a decade, that that was a critical spark to reform, that that war had become unsustainable, that the public was rising up, that, um, in fact, it's often said that Afghanistan was the final nail in the coffin of the Soviet Union, both because it sparked this domestic discontent and also presumably because it was so expensive, it bled the country dry. And I'm sorry, but both of those are wrong, or at least they are um, greatly exaggerated. And if um, and having studied this era and lived through some of it, I can tell you that it was only when the regime loosened up a little bit. And I mean, even before Gorbachev, uh, we don't usually think of the regime of, or the, the, the leadership of Yuri Andropov, who followed Brezhnev in 1982 as a liberal time, but it was a time of some experimentation. And of course he was Gorbachev's patron. And at that time, um, he had decided that they needed to get out of Afghanistan. And he permitted the beginnings of some kind of dissent, very mild, but that included the decision to publish letters in Soviet newspapers and journals from citizens complaining about the deaths, about not being told the truth, about what was really going on there, do we really belong? And it included um, very mild repression, just you could call it um, harassment of some of these soldiers' mothers' groups. Um, in a way that uh, allowed him to pretend that he was holding on to the state's monopoly of media and discussion, but in fact was tacitly saying, yeah, I wouldn't mind some, some of this here. And it seems that, that he had decided that a little bit of pressure from below might help move the, you know, these dinosaurs in the Politburo from above, put this issue back on the agenda. Um, what an interesting thing, right? Sort of a, a 
conscious decision to allow some dissent, some criticism in a discrete area because he'd already decided against the war, but couldn't move the machine of the bureaucracy, the military industrial complex. So that's, I'm sorry for that foray into the past, but the Committee of Soldiers, Mothers and much else, as brave as they were, and they were, right? fighting and they were up, up against a lot of fierce local resistance they kind of had a distant patron in the kremlin who signaled this issue needs to be back on the agenda um putin has not taken that decision right so what i'm saying here is that the anti-war movement in the late 70s and early 80s did not force the soviets out of afghanistan and it was something that was tolerated when it served the purposes of some who had reformist leanings so that leads to the economic explanation, right? Did, this, did the war in Afghanistan, um, was the Soviet Union bankrupt? Um, again, no, it was bankrupted by a lot of things, but that war was sustainable in, in the very narrow sense. The number of soldiers dying or being uh, you know, um, wounded and, and brought back, you know, crippled and, and handicapped for life was modest compared to what we see in Ukraine today. The cost was modest. Um, but of course, the difference, a key difference then and now was that um, in, in the by the mid 80s, when Gorbachev came to power and really needed to reform, the price of oil had, had tanked. The country was broke. All its export earnings had vanished. Right now, on the contrary, right, Russia is, is rolling in oil and gas revenues. So again, if we're going to compare the situation, the main forces for change that could constrain the regime, that could force it to think about changing path, relaxing, reforming, uh, at present, Putin has um, has things in his favor. It may not last yeah. indefinitely, but for the moment, and, yes. And you actually highlighted the really important question that we're going to return back to, which is how much the regime could have learned from its history, learned from the 80s, et cetera. I know there's been quite a bit of interesting literature saying we spoke focused so much on counterinsurgency, but what about counter movement? What about you know ways to counter these types of movements? And, and I do want to return to that. But before we go on, I do want to return back to this question of the person of Navalny, because there's this tendency, in particular, when a political prisoner is killed in a very high profile way, and the attentions that are played to this, adding to that, of course, the incredibly moving documentary on Navalny, that there is a bit of, you know, hero worship, you know, this, this elevation of the figure. But Navalny was a pretty controversial figure, right, Steve? In some ways, what were some of the areas of controversy? And let me just say, before I forget to respond to Rob's really sobering and, and very useful overview and parallels drawn between this current period, and just say to me, what Rob just said reinforces how important it would be and is for the West and everyone who cares about human rights and reform in Russia to be in it and for the long haul and to do what we can creatively. Going back to so many of the sort of earlier Cold War methods that, that did work well, like the Voice of America, like Radio Free Europe, like finding ways to support the Russian voices that are in this. The West can't reform Russia, but Russia can reform Russia, and we can help Russians do that. But um, Navalny absolutely was controversial. He had so many controversial points that we don't have time to get into all of them, but you know, some of the highlights were that when he launched his political career, he really flirted with ultra-nationalists in the beginning. It was so apparent that he had to either get kicked out or, or left the Liberal Yablika Party in 2007. He made very strange videos um, talking about fascism and uh, again, uh, started a movement called Narod, the, the Russian National Liberation uh, Movement. He then um, apparently cheered or cheerleaded during the 2008 
invasion of Georgia and made comments that he later apologized for. And then he moved from there to, um, like many Russians, including liberals, have done and, and sounds familiar with parallels to the United States, he focused on immigrants and demonized migrants, especially Central Asians, which is really, I think, among many of my Central Asian colleagues, have led them to be absolutely livid about the lionization, as you said, Doug, this hero worship of Navalny, because he made you know, out and out racist statements and actually advocated for the, the, the establishment of a visa regime with Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, even Kazakhstan. I was watching those interviews in recent days just to remind myself of those points. But most controversially for Ukrainians and for everyone else was in 2014. He did not oppose um, the occupation of Crimea. And you know, he later stepped back from that. And obviously his wife, uh, Yulia Navalny, when she gave um, comments uh, just days ago in the European Parliament, She's, of course, anti-war, but many voices, Ukrainians and not only, are pointing out the fact that Navalny and his wife now have not been nearly explicit enough in their calls for an end to the war or to a reversal of the war. In some ways, it's kind of reminiscent of this recent uh, would-be presidential contender, Boris Nadezhdin, that was barred from running in the, the upcoming presidential elections, who certainly criticized the war, but wasn't willing to say... You know, we are wrong. We are in violation of international law. This must be entirely reversed. And you know, the, to expect this from a Russian domestic figure uh, is unrealistic. But I, I think that that would be setting the bars too low. I think Navalny and now Navalnaya um, could have done, should have done more in this regard to bring Russia in line with it's established international legal commitments. We have the 1994 Budapest Memorandum that obligated Russia to recognize Ukraine's borders, including Crimea. So it shouldn't be that hard, is what I'm saying. I do think, though, by the end of his life, he had for at least six or seven years stepped back from the racism and the anti-migration rhetoric. And that's at least, I think, good. And finally, I'll just say, Doug, getting all the controversy out in one answer, this was so controversial that Amnesty International in 2021 declared him a prisoner of conscience and then had to publicly reverse it uh, and then re-reverse itself, um, saying that, in fact, they did witness an evolution um, in his thinking that made him an avowed fighter for human rights. But at one point, they were forced to really eat crow and acknowledge that Navalny had made statements that were nationalist and racist. So. I, I think it's important that we get a full picture out there when we're discussing him. Um, and again, it, it doesn't detract from how important he was. It just means that he was a complicated, certainly not angelic figure. Yeah. And, and Rob, some of those points definitely have been cited and even perhaps exploited by the Russian state, correct? That this guy's not the guy, you know, who his Western supporters have said that he is. Yeah, it's a little difficult for the Putin regime to uh, fault Navalny for being anti-Central Asian or anti-Ukrainian or too nationalist or too imperialist, uh, given what they're doing. But I would add, um, maybe it's self-evident, but Steve um, made particular mention of the attitudes in Central Asia towards Navalny because of these things he'd said, uh, racist, exclusivist, um, and so forth, you know, years back. And I would just point out that something similar, although not quite as intense, but something parallel worth mentioning um, is the same for Ukrainian attitudes towards Navalny, right? Before the annexation of Crimea in 2014, in 2010, 2011, early in his career, 
at, in that period where he was flirting with sort of nationalism, even ultranationalism, he said stuff. Um, he seemed to espouse a view, a kind of big brother Russian view, um, and he even explicitly said on, on occasions that uh, you know one day that Belarus and Ukraine are our little brothers, or and they belong with Russia, and one day they will, will be together in a unitary state again. Um, you know, some of that resonates with what Putin said more recently. It's not that he said let's invade to make it happen, right? But um, he seemed to harbor these kind of great Russian or chauvinistic Russian attitudes, which for non-Russians mean imperialism, right? Those are the attitudes that fueled past imperialism, at least in part, they were some among the driving forces and the suspicion that they persist today, the arrogance, the kind of dismissiveness of others, complete sovereignty, independence, or the importance of their separate history can be seen as part of what made possible um, the broad public apathy or even support of at least seizing Crimea and, and maybe the Donbass as well, uh, uh, not fully recognizing those, um, those nations, those peoples, those states as legitimate separate polities. And so when 2014 did come, right, on top of these earlier attitudes or expressed opinions, uh, when Crimea was annexed, um, there, he, he, said, he said various things. Um, he never cheerleaded directly, but he did. One of the, the things that's often quoted is when um, the question was raised, well, we should give Crimea back, right? This annexation was incorrect. You know, I said, well, legally it was problematic. And then he said something to the effect of, but what is Crimea? Is it like a ham sandwich? We're just going to keep passing it back and forth? Come on now which was his, his colloquial, you know, sort of his very um, folksy way of saying it's back in Russia and it's going to stay here. So with all of that, you can imagine that there's an enormous amount of suspicion towards, and in some cases, deep dislike of Navalny. And so they'll say some of the same things that Steve reported from Central Asia. Why is he being lionized? You know, he wasn't the worst. He wasn't Putin. But these things he said and these attitudes that he that were his default mode um, show that deep down in all Russians, or at least in a majority of Russians, there is this kind of arrogant, chauvinistic, imperialist streak. And that's what worries them. And they see that as enabling, even if it wasn't directly proposing or cheerleading for expansionism for an invasion. And then the question comes, well, how much did he renounce those views? And once expressed, especially in the context of a war with Ukraine, and, and what Ukrainians see as a, a broad streak of, uh, again, an, a soft imperialism or a denigration of their separate history in so many Russians that makes possible the support or at least apathy we see today, they see someone like Navalny, you know, how much can you reform? You know, that's what he believed. And these last few years, well, he's just saying that because of his Western critics, because he wants to go to Germany, because he gets funding from abroad, because he needs that support. I'm not saying these are facts. I'm saying the suspicion is his true beliefs are what he expressed up to the age of 40. And then more recent um, views are maybe he's trimming his sails for you know, various, you know, once upon a time he was looking for support mainly in Russia. So he appealed to that Russian national streak. Now he's living half the time abroad and, and making documentaries and, and he derives some of his income and support. So therefore he's adjusted. That's pretty uncharitable. I think there was, I think he was maturing. I think he was growing up and his horizons were being broadened and his sensitivities were growing. Um, that he was that before, and we have to give him credit for that evolution and not just say it was tactical. But you can understand why for non-Russians, the suspicion remained. No, absolutely. And it seems like a pretty common narrative here that when you see policies, positions change, that align yourself you know, perhaps more with 
progressive internationalist groups, always the suspicion that you're being influenced from outside as a way to undermine the legitimacy within the country itself. And certainly you both have highlighted the very complicated relationship Russia has with Central Asian republics and with some of the other republics. When we come back, Navalny was not the only political dissident in Russia. Who else is resisting the government and its direction? And what are their causes? Stay with us. This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. What does Alexei Navalny's death portend for Russian leader Vladimir Putin? Does it suggest he's a strong man or that he is instead weaker than he appears? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Our panelist today is Robert English. He's Associate Professor of International Relations and the co-director of the Central European Studies Program at the University of Southern California. And Steve Swordlow, Associate Professor of the Practice of Human Rights in the Department of Political uh, Science and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Rob English, one question that always comes to mind whenever a high-profile dissident, a high-profile activist is killed. I always ask myself, is that a signal that the regime is strong because they think they can get away with killing a leader and there's no consequences? Or is it the sign that the regime is weakening because they feel like they, because the regime's leaders, in this case, you know, Putin and, and his lieutenants believe Navalny was becoming really dangerous and, and we've got to take him out. Should we read this as a sign of strength or weakness in Putin's Russia? It can be both. It can be both. Certainly, I think for the for Putin and the authorities, whoever decided, you know, to to end his life, um, there had to be an element of fear. Right? He could have stayed in prison. He was silenced pretty effectively. Um, at least only small messages could get out, you know, but he couldn't be active and lead his movement and engage in the really powerful anti-corruption, um, pro-democracy activities he did before. So why kill him now? Um, maybe this hint of fear on the eve of elections, of distracting attention from um, what Putin sees as victories, as progress in the war on Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of gloating going on. We have to remember that in Moscow right now, the war is being betrayed, portrayed very differently, um, that they have taken the best that Ukraine and NATO could throw at them. They have beaten it back and now they're advancing and they've taken this city or that city. So it's um, a moment of celebration and kind of imperial glory, militarized, militarized um, pride. And that plus the elections coming up and, and relatively, for the moment, decent economic news, um, they didn't want something messing that up. They didn't want some kind of major Navalny campaign, continued statements coming out. But on a, on a larger level, um, it's obviously a sign of strength at the same time. He can just do this with impunity and not fear the consequences. Um, I think, again, one of us said earlier on that um, 
this doesn't help Russia in the eyes of the West. We see um, his wife is speaking for the for the European Parliament today. We see resolutions in all these Western countries and and new pledges of of security and support for Ukraine that seem directly to flow from the anger over Navalny. New rounds of sanctions being announced by the U.S. administration. But I think that for Putin, it doesn't amount to much. He's taken the most sanctions. He he's already sanctioned so heavily. It's hard to imagine any new sanctions having any appreciable making any appreciable difference. Uh, he's already hated in the West. The Russian image couldn't be worse. He's not playing to that audience. In some ways, he's in fact reveling in it. The more they hate us, the more it shows I'm right. And um, so, what's one more death? What's what's Navalny? Might as well get rid of him now. It, it, the picture goes more complicated in the future. And to illustrate the the dual nature of that, it could be a sign of strength and weakness. Let's go back to June and the killing of Yevgeny Prigozhin, right? The Russian commander of a private military company. He was actually the CEO, wasn't really a commander. He liked to pose in fatigues in front of soldiers, but I don't think he ever got anywhere near a live bullet. But in any case, he was the head of the Wagner private military company. And, um, and he was also a corruption fighter in his own way. He railed and fumed at the corruption of the Ministry of Defense, their fumbling of the war, their inability to properly uh, supply their troops. And, and he was garnering a lot of public, uh, publicity and popularity for that. And in Russian polling, he was, um, he'd, he'd climbed, um, to just second place, just behind Putin in the popular imagination. That's really dangerous. That's really troubling, uh, and a minimum for Putin's pride. And so, um, and yet at that moment, before Putin could act, Prigozhin acted and staged this mutiny, staged this attempted rebellion. And, um, and Putin, you know, um, he killed him. There was a sort of a standoff. He let the guy go into exile in Belarus. Um, he disbanded his, his formations by and large, re, absorbed them into the regular army, so he had no more power base, and then uh, chose to kill him, and kill him in a really strangely visible way, blowing up his airplane. You know, why would you do it that way? What happened to Novichok or strangulation in a prison cell? So that was Putin almost, you know, rubbing it in everyone's face. And so I'll conclude this long answer and this, you know, indecisive answer, it's both, Doug, is what I'm saying, with, with, by emphasizing the following. I think uppermost for Putin at this moment is, again, showing that dualism, is that I'm strong, right? I can do this. I can do this with impunity, and I don't care who criticizes me at home or abroad, and you better stay quiet too, because this is what awaits you. So it's a chilling message to other would-be protesters, rebels, uh, political organizers. And yet, and yet all the while, why do it unless they're threatening you on some level, unless there's an element of fear as well? And I also th think this now, you both can probably address this question. When I saw Navalny was killed, what immediately came to mind was whether or not this could possibly be a version of a Jamal Khashoggi moment that, you know, Khashoggi gets killed and suddenly the U.S. Congress starts to reconsider the relationship that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia. And in this case, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of dissimilarities here because Putin has held in much less regard you know, than the Saudis had been held in uh, in the U.S. Congress. But the U.S. Congress at this point, the House of Representatives in particular, seemed completely disinterested in funding, in, in a new round of funding for Ukraine. And, you know, one of the arguments with all of this was that, you know, why are we fighting the Russians? There was even this suggestion, certainly on the right in the Republican Party, Russians are the good guys. Tucker Carlson goes and interviews Putin and talks about how wonderful Russia is. And then the volume gets killed. 
And the defense Carlson has when he's asked about it is, well, leaders sometimes have to kill people. That's not exactly, uh, I don't think, an effective political defense. So, the, so it makes it more difficult, I would think, for a number of representatives to, to make the argument that the reason why the U.S. shouldn't be supporting Ukraine is that Russia really isn't our enemy. Russia actually shares our values when they're killing leaders like Navalny. Am I over reading this? Um, and you know, over in the concern, I mean, I, I think one of Rob's answers is Putin doesn't necessarily care about that. Or, you know, he's not as concerned, but is this a miscalculation? Could this change the way the U.S. views, and particularly elements of the Republican Party and, and House of Representatives, views the Russians vis-a-vis -vis the war in Ukraine? Doug, would you, would you allow me to, um, before addressing the foreign policy implications, and I want to get to that, can I put a little bit more meat on the bone of what Russian, you know, the, your earlier question about resistance. Just You could always add more meat to the bone. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a great question. And I'll, I'll give you a first preview to that, to the answer that certainly, if nothing else, Navalny's death has injected new energy and maybe I think has, has maybe in fact sealed the deal for what Bill Browder has been calling for. He, of course, led the charge for the the passage of the now very famous Global Magnitsky Act, which helps us sanction the bad guys, started with Russia. And what he's been calling for, and I think he's going to get over the hill, is to seize $300 billion of foreign Russian assets in, in banks uh, in the West. And he's vigorously arguing for that. Of course, it breaks a lot of precedent in international law to do that. But I think if nothing else, Navalny's death, certainly that may have been the miscalculation. We'll get to Ukraine in a moment, but if you allow me, I just wanted to say that I have been trying to track and, and, and follow what's happening with Russian legislation and your question about resistance and what's happening in society. It's been really fascinating. We've been on just, um, of course, you know, ever since Putin returned to the presidency, he started introducing a raft of legislation like the foreign agents law back in 2012, which allowed you to put NGOs as foreign agents on a list. That list keeps growing, and now it includes individual journalists and lots of individuals and celebrities. But in addition to that, especially since the war began, we've seen the implementation of these new laws. One is the one that, that was used to convict Oleg Orlov from Memorial uh, just this week. It's for discrediting the Russian army. That's probably the one that we're seeing used the most. Um, discrediting the Russian army can be anything. It can be, um, again, just criticizing the war or calling for humanity in the war. Um, it's really, you know, he was holding the trial by Franz Kafka at his trial. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a moving photo of him literally holding the, the, the book, the trial. And uh, that, that charge has been deployed against him very defectively, uh, effectively, uh, defectively. Um, and he said at his trial, let me just mention, I know I mentioned him earlier, but he was in his last speech. He said, this, these are the disturbing things happening. He said, in Russia, books have been banned. Uh, a non-existent LGBT movement has been banned, which in reality means brazen state interference in the citizen's private life. He says, prospective students applying at the higher school of economics are banned from even citing the works of so-called foreign agents. Um, now before students can study any topic they have to study and memorize the lists of the foreign agents, uh, the well-known sociologist Boris Kagarlitsky was sentenced to five years in prison for just a few words about Ukraine. Um, and then here's the good one, and you guys will really appreciate this. When publicly speaking about the beginning of World War II, the person, that is the president, Oleg Orlov says, whom propagandists are calling the, quote, national leader, said the following. After all, the Poles forced, they got carried away, and they forced Hitler 
to make him start World War II with them. Why is it with Poland that the war started? Because Poland turned out to be disobedient. Hitler had no other choice but to start with Poland when implementing his plans. And let's note that Russian law outlaws any support for fascism. And so therefore, some are making the argument now that Putin could be convicted on inciting fascism with his recent statements. But this is how absurd it has become to engage in modest, modest, uh, in, you know, expressions of dissent with the official line. And there are literally hundreds of ordinary Russians now that are being convicted on these various charges from extremism to discrediting the army to spreading so-called fake information. Rob's absolutely right that the picture is dire. And what we know is that Russians really do need help. The civil society needs help. Things are really, really going down and going down quickly. So actually now you're painting a picture of Russian states becoming all the more repressive. And Rob, you suggest one of the reasons for this is Putin can act with impunity. The regime can act with impunity. So at this point, is the trajectory just more repression, less resistance, more authoritarianism within Russia? Or is there a backlash that uh, it's possible? Yeah, because the trajectory certainly seems to suggest things aren't looking very good for resistance. I think the trajectory is that there will be steadily growing. I'm not sure resistance is the right word, but I know what we're encompassing with that. Dissidents, some of it internal, some of it mildly expressed, some of it more active. Um, but that trajectory is starting from a low point, but I think it will slowly grow. The regime, however, will, will fight back with the tools we know it has. And um, let's just call it what it is. When we're comparing with the Soviet period, um, Putin can more effectively suppress resistance with the tools at his disposal in a modern world of social media, internet control, surveillance, monitoring, um, than the Soviet leadership could with their tools. And that allows people a modicum of normalcy, a better life, and certainly economically things are better, even as not thought, but actions are controlled even more effectively. I don't see anything that's going to change in that slowly growing dissident, more and more people dissatisfied, marginally fewer every month willing to say something or make some small act, but the vast majority still unwilling to resist. So it doesn't lead in the near future, even in the medium term, to anything like social instability or a threat to the regime. And from the regime itself, this continued um, effective combating anything that might weaken their grip on power. So for me, the future is decided in Ukraine, right? As long as that war is going on um, and on its current trajectory. But we know it's not sustainable. Right now, Putin is riding high. Right now, he is celebrating, in a sense, the fact that he is outlasting the Ukrainians and the West. And we have been uh, taken by surprise in our inability to keep up Right, we celebrate. I keep reading these articles and hearing this commentary from David Ignatius and and the Atlantic Council and everywhere. We, but we, the combined population, the combined GDP of the West, our industrial, our technological advantages are enormous. But what does it matter if we can't even pass simple legislation in Congress? If we are so spoiled or comfortable, it's just the way it is. The dissatisfaction in Europe is very high. They're paying enormously higher energy prices than before. Um, in some ways, they're sacrificing far more than Americans are to aid Ukraine. Um, and yet we look at them and say, oh, what a bunch of wussies. They can't even spend 2% on defense, as if 
that was some kind of magical number. It's not the relative, it's the absolute that matters in this moment. And But we are collectively comfortable, satisfied, and showing that we have not yet understood the magnitude of the challenge. And therefore, a, a regime that's technologically 10 or 20 years behind the West, but that has the advantages of all dictatorial regimes of a command sector of the economy, the defense sector, they can pump in money, they can organize factories and just say, do it. Our capitalist in military, right? Our defense contract is like, well, where are the contracts? I'm not going to build a new factory for shells unless I have a guaranteed contract for 20 years. What about foreign sales? What about export licenses? It is so complicated now. I went back and studied a little bit about the arsenal of democracy in World War II, namely the ways that the United States, above all, defeated Hitler with, you know, the massive efforts of General Motors and Ford and, and so many other companies that converted to wartime production and just churned out the Liberty ships, churned out the tanks that we used for our armies and to support our allies, including, by the way, the Soviet Union. And what's remarkable to me, people forget that that was a kind of a socialist period, right? A lot of rules were suspended. There were no strikes. Right? The government could impose management labor solutions um, as for foreign sales, as for export license, guaranteed contracts, profits. The state stepped in under Roosevelt and, and sort of took over and managed that sector with incredible efficiency. Today, we're organized very differently and, and we're not making any moves to get more serious because you know we run, as you know, the board of directors, the profit and the next quarterly statement. And as long as that's the case, both in Europe and here, we can't even produce enough artillery shells to give the Ukrainians a fighting chance. And I'm sorry to shift this from political support, dissidents, the stability of the regime to the economy. But as long as that persists, the outlook for Ukraine is not good. They're not going to win this war and they'll be lucky just to hold the line and eventually force some kind of ceasefire, some truce, roughly where the lines of control are now. And, and only when this war is over, unless the West gets its act together and substantively changes something, um, it's going to be more status quo. Putin will crow about victory. Um, he will have a win, a big win. Um, he will also have a peace dividend if the fighting stops, if the high expenditures, the loss of life stops. So if, if Ukraine fights Russia to a draw, Russia wins because the status quo, we can see it just more of the same. If something substantive changes, something in a big way where Russia is really losing this war or is somehow or other forced, it could happen in a different way. It could happen because the Chinese, the Turks, the Saudis, um, they say that the impact on the global economy is just too destabilizing. We can't take this. Putin, you have to stop. You know, concerted pressure from those countries, which we have not seen at all, could make a difference. But until something like that changes one way or the other, Putin is stable and strong and maybe even stronger. Mm. And Steve, what Rob's talking about really at the core, I think, is a question about political will. Do you see a political will to support these dissidents within Russia? I know the work you do with Human Rights Watch, you know, in the human rights community, there's quite a bit of political will, but but a political will that would be expressed broadly within the political systems in the U.S., across Europe, et cetera, to, to really make support for dissidents a much greater priority than it seems to be? Well, I mean, I think in some sense there has been a return to first principles, as we were saying, so many parallels to the Cold War period where you have a lot of experienced folks 
uh, Russia experts, you know, deploying that earlier expertise and, you know, uh, in terms of what had worked to support civil society in the darkest periods. And again, that, that I think is things like the BBC Russia service, who we saw their, uh, their viewership and their listener rates go up dramatically in the last year. This shows that there's a demand among Russians. Again, that's in Russian, the Russian BBC. Um, there's, a, there's a demand among many Russians and not just those outside the country for real news, for real information. That may sound very modest when set against the you know very accurate and, again, sobering picture that Rob just offered about what we have to expect. But I think that um, that demand is there within Russian society for this to be delivered, uh, the premium on, on, on truth. Truth does matter. So yes, I think that's uh, I think that's there. I completely also agree with Rob's statement that Russia's future is going to be decided in Ukraine. And and people like Timothy Snyder have said that you know, Russia needs to lose and lose decisively in order for us to see any real reform. It's only when empires lose wars that they reset um, the way they are structured. One other thing that happened, and I think you know, Rob was also right to mention Prigozhin. I think his episode shows Russia's weakness in many ways, and um, you know, it may be a cliche, but it is true, and I found it to be the case in Central Asia too, that authoritarian regimes are as strong as they appear until they're not, right? As, as, and it can happen in the wink of an eye. But one thing that happened recently that we never pay attention to Russia's regions, but just recently there were four days, not one, four days of protest in the northern central, uh, sort of close to the Urals, Republic of Bashkortostan, uh, Turkic-speaking Bashkirs, who actually uh, came out to protest a local decision to allow geological mining to happen in Bashkortostan. Uh, this activist, Vazil Azlinov, uh, it, it compelled you know, hundreds of people to come out and have real clashes with the police that led to arrests and a crackdown. And it led some to remember that Russia is multi-ethnic. Multi it's complicated. The regions are often ignored. Um, we saw, you know, about 10 years ago, we saw a really interesting movement in the Far East in the mayoral election. We've seen confrontations on a level that Putin just doesn't have the capacity to respond to everything, everywhere, all at once. And so I think it behooves everyone that is supporting protest to just fully take in Russia's breadth, diversity, ethnic, class, and, and design approaches that are going to be responsive to that thirst for information, that need for truth. Um, I do agree with Rob that Putin's able to artificially create uh, a higher standard of living for a time. But I also think that the internet, Telegram, and VPNs, um, and creativity, going back to the very first point about Navalny, is that key. It's the key to supporting the dissidents, supporting human rights, and uh, I think it's going to be a long road, but I think that arc bends towards justice, ultimately. Yeah, gentlemen, if I could say one thing in conclusion, Please. it's that Steve's right. And maybe the most important lesson of history and the history of how autocracies end or how dictatorial regimes engaged in war finally come down, it's that it's sudden. They look strong, they look strong up till the end, and then suddenly, in hindsight, of course they were weak but it's hard to see before it happens. And the second thing that supports the first, you know, is that the, the war, again, wars that seem, 
the war is taking a tremendous toll. And Steve sort of said it when he said artificial prosperity. I want to emphasize that. Russia is mortgaging its future. It has zero significant foreign investment. It has zero significant technological interaction with the West. It's, it's scraping by with 10-year-old computer chips and parts of processors pirated from appliances. And it's working surprisingly effectively for the war in Ukraine. But they are mortgaging their, their high-tech economic future and, and really consigning themselves to be a petrostate in an era when there is very little interest in petroleum. Um, we know that in another generation, Russia needs to be prepared for a very different economy. Um, it's selling all that off and it's not investing in the future. And this is temporary. It's very temporary. And that too will be felt maybe sooner than we think, an economic pinch. They're riding high right now, but it is artificial. Our panel today has been Robert English. He's the Associate Professor of International Relations and Co-Director of the Central European Studies Program at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Russia and the Idea of the West. And Steve Swardlow is Associate Professor of the Practice of Human Rights in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Uzbekistan's Religious and Political Prisoners and Uzbekistan's Ethnic Minorities, Out of Sight But Not Out of Mind, and writes extensively as a human rights monitor for Human Rights Watch. Thank you both very much. For Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholar Circle team includes Doug Becker, host, Ankine Agassian, managing producer, Sadan Gray, our webmaster. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.